Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, how are you? So, last week we had the old ladies driving around the world with two tonnes of hash. This week we explore an Alaskan serial killer. Now in February last year, episode 142, we went over Israel Keys. And this one you may or may not know, Robert Christian Hansen, or Bob as he was known. He would become known as the Butcher Baker. But first... I'm just going to run a promo for Mike Morford's latest podcast called Citizen Detective. Check it out. And he did ask for me to put it at the start. So after that, we'll get straight into the show. Do you obsess over cold cases? Do you go down endless rabbit holes on online forums searching for clues to solve your pet case? Are you an armchair sleuth? If so, we'd like to invite you to check out our new podcast, Citizen Detective. I'm Mike Morford. I'm Nama Cates. And I'm Dr. Lee Meller. We work hand-in-hand with citizen detectives just like you to examine some of the most puzzling unsolved mysteries out there. Citizen Detective is out right now, and new episodes drop every other Saturday. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Citizen Detective. Okay, so check that one out. Back to this case of Robert Hansen. References tonight are the book, Butcher Baker, The True Account of an Alaskan Serial Killer, by Walter Gilmore and Leland E. Hale. Uh, Leland's website as well, lelandhale.com, the Des Moines Register, the Winnipeg Sun, Seattle Times, zillow.com, where you can find a lot of these killers' houses, and sometimes they have photos inside. Dr. Grande on YouTube, check out his uh, YouTube channel. It is great. He does a lot of the cases that I've done already. He analyzes the psychology behind the perpetrators. And also, we've got some court records. So, the main part of this story will be set in Alaska, mid-70s to mid-80s. And back in the day, Alaska was a bit of a wild frontier. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's a wild frontier now. There was lots of mining, oil drilling, pipeline building, fishing and logging going on. Now, these industries, they can attract a lot of blow-ins from other states. And to service these employees, there's also a huge demand for sex workers who also might blow in and out of the area. Along with that, there's a huge demand for drugs and alcohol. So when people go missing, it can be hard to tell if they just left town, they got lost in the wilderness, or in the case of ladies working the streets and clubs, it's hard to tell if they just left town or something more sinister happened to them. Most worked under false names and were from interstate, making the search for them even more difficult. Now, predators know this, and they will use this to prey on their victims. And like I said, Alaska was a modern-day but frozen Wild West. Robert Hansen, he knew this, and he used this to his advantage in the end. So who is this Robert or Bob Hansen? He was born February the 15th, 1939 in Esseville, Iowa, with the family briefly moving to California before settling in Pocahontas in Iowa. In 1949, his father owned a bakery in town, and while still at school, Bob was required to get up and help his father prepare the daily bread at about 2 o'clock in the morning. 
Now, this left him falling asleep later in the day at class. Following in his father's footsteps, Hansen was trained as a baker. He had a bit of a love-hate relationship with his father, describing him as very demanding and never satisfied with his work. And this was despite the great effort he put in to please him. Now, Bob wasn't a great looker. He was a bit shy and he had a stutter. It's this combination of things that would have the girls he asked out reject him, leading him to be a a bit of a loner. He really got into hunting and was a proficient archer. Now, these things he could do on his own to help with this rejection and his domineering father and the loneliness. So he'd go out and just get out in the wilderness by himself, use his bow and arrow. At 18, he signed up for the Army Reserve for a year and then moved into an assistant drill instructor role at a police academy. Now, Dr. Grundy on YouTube, he reckons that both these sort of jobs are typical of serial killers. So again, check him out on YouTube. He not only analyses criminals on his show, he also does things like analysing the sort of things like Depp and Amber events. It's really worth a listen. Anyway... Hanson would meet his first wife, Phoebe Patchett, and get married in 1960. On December the 7th, 1960, three years after leaving school, Hanson and a, a friend, which was a young friend, burned down the bus shed at the school he went to. He would get busted for this in 1961 and get three years in the men's reformatory at Anamosa. He was paroled on May the 1st, 1963. Now, his first wife divorced him as soon as he was convicted. But when he was released, he married again in 1963 to Dala Marie Henriksen. He would get busted several times for theft before moving to Anchorage, Alaska with Dala in 1967, and they'd end up having a couple of kids. In Alaska, he was seen as a really nice guy by the community, and his hunting skills with a bow and arrow brought him a lot of respect. On the walls of his house, he had mounted heads of the animals he killed. This collection was reasonably valuable, and it, of course, was insured. Dala had a master's degree in education and would become a teacher. She was also an avid churchgoer. Now, growing up, Hanson didn't have any money or very, very little money, even though he was working for his father while still at school. He would get a few cents an hour for his time, and even when he was older and had money in his pocket, he would end up shoplifting. And this got him into trouble. He just couldn't bring himself to spend what money he did have and in one instance, he saw a chainsaw in the department store and wanted to get it, get it for his father. Now, this occurred in November the 3rd, 1976, while Hanson was shopping in an Anchorage department store. A store security guard observed Hanson acting suspiciously in the store's sporting goods section. Now, he watched Hanson place an old sales receipt on a chainsaw box and leave the store with it. The guard apprehended Hanson in the store parking lot. Hanson said after he got busted, I looked at them and remembered about five weeks previous, my father and I had been cutting wood for our fireplace and he's remarking three or four times how much he would like to have one. My folks live in Oregon and were visiting us for four weeks. So he wanted to have one to use when he and my mother go camping along the coast. 
I told my father that he would be more than welcome to take mine, but he refused. I thought of this and all the presents my parents had given me through the years and how wonderful it would be if I could give him a sword for Christmas. I also thought, of course, that my wife and I had just bought this summer a new home and put everything we'd saved for more than nine years into it. I guess many, many thoughts went through my mind as I looked at the sores. I wanted almost more than anything to please my father and could just imagine the expression on his face on Christmas Day. If I could give him that sore. I walked around the store some more and out the front door. Outside, a native man had just had a heart attack. The police, fire department and paramedics were there to give him treatment. My father, 69, has had one heart attack and is very overweight. Again, I thought of this chainsaw and how pleased he would be to receive it at Christmas. I walked back into the store, again, to the sores. I thought there was a young man watching me, but then he seemed to disappear. On the one box that I picked up, there was a sales receipt. I guess this is when I first really seriously thought about taking the saw. It seemed like nobody would know if I paid for the saw or not if they saw a sales receipt on the box. I took the saw and walked out the door when I was apprehended and arrested. I know what I did was wrong and I'm very sorry for doing so. (laughs) I call bullshit on that one. Anyway... When he would get busted, and this will be in the future, he had all these long stories on how it's not really his fault and this is the explanation and all that sort of stuff. Hansen was 37 years old at the time and he would end up going inside for that theft. The reason he would do time for something you'd think is minor as shoplifting is because he'd already been done for the burning down of the school bus garage in 1960, destroying three of the seven buses inside, plus the garage. Also, he was charged with the attempted kidnapping and rape of a young real estate secretary in Anchorage in 1971. Now, around the same time as that attempted rape, he would also be charged with abducting and raping a sex worker. He would do a plea deal where the charges for raping the sex worker were dropped if he pleaded guilty to the abduction and attempted rape of the secretary. Now, he would get five years, but he would be out in six months. Yes, six months. He basically told investigators that after picking up the sex worker at a club, she asked him for money, and he realised then that she was a sex worker, not some girl he'd just picked up at the club, and so then he just decided to drive her back to back to the club and that she was making this story up that he raped her. Now, police believed Hansen over the sex worker. Now, this won't be the first time this happens, and it wasn't just to him. This happens all the time, and back then, it was anybody's word against a sex worker. Anyway, Hanson's house was at 7223 Old Harbour Avenue in Anchorage. You can have a look at that on Google Maps because it would be quite important if you see where that is compared to some other places. Now, it was around a 2,600 square feet or 243 square metre house on almost an acre block. This property had a basement, so I guess you know where we're going with that. Hansen devised an insurance scam where he reported all of this trophy collection that he had on his walls and all these rugs that they had been stolen. Now, it comprised of a bear rug, a sheep head, which apparently it's this doll sheep, which is a magical sheep in the Alaska mountains. must be hard to get. Anyway, 
the sheep head, a wolverine hide, a grizzly hide, a beaver hide and walrus tusks. The claim was paid out by State Farm Insurance to the tune of $13,000 and this helped Hanson finance a bakery and even, even a Piper Cub plane. He kept the Piper Cub plane, which is a tiny little plane, at Merrill Field Airport. So if you find out where he lives on Google Maps, Merrill Field Airport isn't that far away. Now, it's funny when you look at Google Maps of Merrill Field, it, it has all these light aircraft parked there. It's just like a shopping centre car park. I guess people use these small planes in Alaska like we use cars in in normal places. I hate the word, use the word normal, but up there, I guess it's all the wilderness. People have little planes, they just buy them instead of four-wheel drives. Let's just get a plane, it's easy to get somewhere. Anyway. Hansen would fly this plane quite a bit, even though he had no license. And I guess that's another thing. I suppose it's just quite easy to fly. You can just pick it up easy watching somebody else fly. His bakery, now this is the third point to have a look on your Google Maps, is located at 828 East 9th Avenue. All right, so you've got the Google. It's basically in a straight line. He's got his bakery. In the middle is Merrill Airfield, and on the right-hand side, You'll see his house. The seven-star food mart is there now on the corner instead of his bakery. And it's only six miles from his home. All right. So that's a little bit of background to get into the case a bit more. As I said before, people go missing in Alaska and it can be for many reasons. But Maxine Farrell from the Anchorage Police Department, she noticed that in the very early 80s, out of all these missing people and especially missing women, there seemed to be some pattern involved in their disappearance for this one group in particular, topless dancers. Now, it wasn't unusual for topless dancers to go missing and then turn up months later. They would often go to maybe another city to work for a while and return, or they just get out of town for a while. Now, some of them, though, that were still on this missing persons list, they had one thing in common. They'd gone missing after telling their friends they were going out on a date with a guy they didn't know, a paid date that was paying very good money, maybe two or $300. Now, sometimes they told their friends it was maybe for a photo shoot or just going to dinner with a guy or whatever, but they went out and they never came back. Now, trying to get information's, information out of their friends was quite difficult. After being reported missing by their boyfriend or pimp, they're working girlfriends, that is, working girlfriends, were very reluctant to cooperate with police, even if cooperating with police would be helping them in the future. Okay, so let's go over some of this missing that would eventually turn up dead. On July the 17th, 1980, workmen discovered the skeletal remains of a woman in a shallow grave off Eklutna Lake Road. Now, that's about 30 miles as the crow flies northeast of Anchorage. Animals had eaten parts of the body, but there were clothing and jewellery at the scene. An autopsy was performed that stated the cause of death was a stab wound to the back. The woman was petite with blonde hair. Even with facial reconstruction and media releases showing her distinctive jewellery, she's still unknown today and was given the name Eklutna Annie. Three other long-term missing women were ruled out to be Eklundna Annie. They were Celia Beth Van Zanten, 17, 
Megan Siobhan Emmerich, 17, and Mary Kathleen Thill, 22, who all went missing between December 1971 and July 1975. So that's a long time, nearly a decade to, well, five years to 10 years before this body was found. Now, not long after her body was discovered, another would be found in the north of Seward around 110 kilometres or 70 miles south of Anchorage. 24-year-old Joanne Messina, a topless dancer, had been missing since May 1980. Her body was found wrapped in a mouldy sleeping bag and she had a .22 gunshot wound to her head. Then 24-year-old Roxanne Eastland went missing late June. And then 41-year-old Lisa Futrell went missing on the 7th of September 1980. Both walked the streets for money. But the missing didn't stop there. 25-year-old Mylai Larson went missing on June 1981. 23-year-old Sherry Morrow would go missing on the 17th of November 81. 22-year-old Andrea Altery missing on December the 2nd, 81. 23-year-old Sue Luna missing May the 26th, 82. 20-year-old Tamara or Tammy Pedersen missing August 82. 19-year-old Robin Pelkey missing January 83. 24-year-old Angela Federn, missing February 83. 20-year-old Delyn Frey, missing April 83. 21-year-old Paula Goulding, missing April 25th, 83. And 22-year-old Teresa Watson, missing April 29th, 1983. Now, out of that last list of 10 missing women, Sherry Morrow's body would be found in September of 1982 in a shallow grave on the bank of the river north of Anchorage. She'd been shot in the back, but there were no bullet holes in her shirt, indicating she'd been naked when shot and then redressed. Investigators found a 223 shell casing and she was missing her gold arrowhead pendant on her necklace. On the 7th of September 1983, Paula Goulding's body would be found and another 223 shell casing was found near her body. Well, not so much found near her body, it was buried with her. Now, these would be analysed and found from the same, found to be from the same rifle, linking these two cases together. Now, just before Paula's body was found, there'd been another incident and this involved Hansen and that deserved a bit of a look at. On June 13th, 17-year-old Cindy Paulson, a working girl, was seen by a passing motorist running half-naked and handcuffed down the road. He pulled over and drove her to the nearby Mush Inn. Now, here she asked the reception guy to be taken to her boyfriend's place at the Big Timber Motel, and that's just around the corner. Now, when she got there, the police ended up turning up and saw Cindy. She's still handcuffed and freaking out. They took off the cuffs and were told how she'd organised a date with this guy that as soon as she got in his car, he handcuffed her and pulled a gun on her. He then took her to his house, raped and tortured her. Now, while in his house, well, his basement, she saw that the walls were covered with these animal head trophies and he had animal skin rugs. Also, she saw a clothes rack with maybe seven or so dresses on it. Now, she started to wonder... This guy, it's not the first time he's done this. I think I'm going to die. And she was wondering if these dresses on this clothes rack belonged to other girls that he had abducted and raped. She felt she was going to get murdered. 
He then chained her by the neck to a pole. And after a while, he went to sleep. He woke up. He ended up putting her in back in his car. He drives to Merrillfield Airport. Now, it's here that she's able to escape. She gets out of his car while he's loading up his little Piper Cub aeroplane, putting a gun in it, actually. Now, he's chased after her, but he gives up when he's, he sees that she's being rescued by this passing motorist. So on the way to taking her to the hospital, Cindy asked if they could actually stop so she could show them the plane her attacker was loading up. They got the details of the plane and they found it was registered to Robert Hansen. Now, a security guard that night had also seen a guy running and then when he spotted him, this guy stopped and started to walk and he walked to this parked car, got in and drove off. The description of her attacker also matched Hansen and the description of the car plus the registration plate taken from the security guard matched Hansen's car. Okay, so they bring in Hansen for an interview. He tells police that she's lying and that he'd been at a friend's house repairing a seat for his plane all night. And then after that, he went to another friend's house. And then he went straight to the airport to install the seat he'd been repairing. So police call his friends up, and they confirm his story. He was with us all night. When he wasn't with me, he was the other guy. Hansen had a pretty good alibi. When police did go to his house, they did check his house out, they did find some hidden guns, but not the one that she described. There were no chains either, nothing. Now, Cindy did pick Hanson out of a photo lineup and was able to describe the inside of his house. But this only meant that she'd previously been in his house. It didn't mean she was there that night. And also, Cindy, she refused a lie detector test. You can imagine why. She's a sex worker. They don't really like police. She's already in the station. She's had this traumatic night. They want to put her on a lie detector test. So when it came down to believing the well-known family man that had a business and sold the best donuts in town to all the cops, he has an alibi over believing a sex worker, well, you know how that's going to end up. But the cop, Greg Baker, who'd interviewed Cindy, he actually did believe her story, but he would have to let it go, at least for the moment. Cindy then left town for a short while, just probably let... (laughs) Someone tried to murder me. I'm just going to go go away for a while. So when these bodies started turning up in the wilderness, he thought back about Cindy and how she was to be flown out, handcuffed to somewhere probably very remote and inaccessible by road. Just like what seemed to have happened to these the bodies of these women that had been found earlier. It's as if, how did they get there into the wilderness? You probably have to fly someone there. So it's gone tick-tock, tick-tock in his brain. Now, maybe Cindy was going to be next, and well, probably was going to be next, and maybe Hanson was connected to these missing and murdered dancers, the ones that were appearing in the bush. A task force was being set up to investigate these missing and murdered dancers. Now, Greg Baker was a local Anchorage cop, and the Cindy Paulson case was on hold. So he gave everything he had, all his evidence, to state troopers who'd set up this task force. They were able to check out this Robert Hansen guy a lot closer, and they brought in FBI profilers also to go over the case. 
Now, the FBI said that the probable type of person in this case was an outdoors man, independent, a business owner, had low self-esteem because he was picking up sex workers, possibly had a speech defect, had a history of arson, was a bit of a misfit, liked hunting and killing animals. He would also keep souvenirs of his victims. And when you look at it, this described Hanson right down to a T. In fact, the the way they said he had a speech impediment, that he stuttered. But they needed more to get a search warrant on this Hanson guy. A subsequent interview of Cindy Paulson brought to the investigators' attention that the basement she was held in had all these trophies and animal skin rugs. The description of these matched those that Hanson had put in an insurance claim previously. State Farm Insurance supplied photos before the theft and after the theft at the inside of his house. Most importantly, they needed to get back in his house, his plane, his car, and also check out this bakery he's got. So with a little bit of this and a little bit of that, they were able to get a search warrant, so they went to arrest him. Now, Robert Hansen, he was brought in by state troopers. They arrested him at his bakery on October the 27th, 1983. Hansen was taken downtown for an interview. Now, the interview room had piles of files on the desk, which were labelled with names of his friends. And there was even one for his wife, Darla, with a photo of her on it. On the walls, there was a map with a red circle marked Hansen seen here. Now, this was all set up, of course, to intimidate him and hopefully get him to realise he was pretty much busted and hopefully confess. Hansen didn't even ask for a lawyer to be present. He felt he could explain his way out of whatever the investigators had to ask him, as these sort of people do. They think they're smarter than everyone else. Now, after going over his life and his criminal past, they got to ask him about several women over the years that had gone to police with similar stories. The stories went along the lines of that he'd picked up these sex workers and offered them large sums of money, but then things went bad and he'd rape them. The investigator told him that when they get a dozen reports over a dozen years from women that had been with him, reports of him pulling guns on them, being bound up, that it doesn't look good and that there was some sort of pattern here. They then produced a photo of Paula Goulding and told him a 223 shell had been found fired from his weapon near the body. He said it wasn't him. They told him that the FBI are able to match shell casing to rifles and the bullet can be matched as well. Now at this stage, this was a bluff and Hanson sort of seemed to know how could they have my rifle and have tested it even if they could find my rifle. How do they know this? So he's sort of like, mm, I don't really believe this. Anyway, then the investigators asked him about bandages that he used for his bad knees. Hansen then told them that he had many of these bandages. The investigators then showed Hansen a photo of Sherry Morrow and told him that she was found shot dead. Another 223 shell next to her body, or actually buried, and she had bandage around her eyes, just like the bandages he used. They also said the shell casing matched the other one from Paula's site and it was buried, so it just didn't fall there. Hansen still denied being involved. Now, at this time, while he's being investigated, police are searching his house, his car, his plane and the bakery. Now, nothing was found in his car, plane or the bakery, but his house ended up turning up quite a lot of items that would need looking through. There were guns, 
guns everywhere. If you listen to the book or read the book, the amount of guns he had was absolutely incredible, and a lot of them were stolen. They also saw all these apparently stolen trophies and rugs, and that was in the basement. Now, initially, investigators spoke to him about these trophies that he'd reported stolen, but were now back in his house. Hansen told them that they turned back up in his yard one day, but he forgot to tell the insurance company. Hansen, at this point, and he'd been interviewed for a couple of hours at this stage, asked for an attorney. The cops, they went fine. They ended up taking his blood, saliva samples, photos. They processed him at the courthouse and they charged him with the kidnapping and rape of Cindy Paulson. So there's no murder charges at the moment. They just haven't got enough evidence to get there, but they don't want to let this guy back out in the street. Then the investigators at Hanson's house, this was late at night, who'd yet to find any of these weapons used in the shooting of Sherry and Pauline, they finally got upstairs to the attic. After rummaging around right in one corner, they found a Remington 552 rifle, 22 calibre, a Thompson Contender 7mm single-shot pistol, an aviation map with markings, jewellery, including a gold arrowhead necklace, newspaper clippings, a Winchester shotgun, and a Mini-14 Ruger .223 calibre rifle. They also found an aviation map. They finally now thought they had enough evidence to link Hansen with these murders. The Mini-14 would need to be analysed by the FBI to confirm it actually was the weapon used to fire the .223 shells found at the murder scenes. Now, it's not funny, I suppose, but it is funny. They ended up posting the rifle to the FBI rather than someone personally taking it over to the FBI headquarters themselves. They just did this to save money. Well, guess what? It got lost in the mail for nearly a week. But then when it was found, luckily it was found, it was processed and, yeah, it matched the shells that were found. John Henning, now he'd given Hanson an alibi the night that Cindy was raped. He ended up being approached by the investigators as well. Well, his wife was approached while he was away and she got on the phone afterwards to go, said, you better go sort this thing out before it gets out of hand because she sort of knew that, John had been sticking up for him and bullshitting to the police for him. Now, when John had given this alibi, he was under the impression it was some for some minor sort of thing Hanson had done, maybe with a topless dancer, got in trouble or something. Not a vicious attack and that he was now being questioned for multiple murders. He didn't think it was that bad. So it was pretty quick that Henning and his other mate retracted this statement, which now meant, Hansen had no alibi for the kidnapping and rape of Cindy Paulson, and Cindy would be willing to testify against Hansen. Also, the undies that Cindy wore the night she was raped, plus a tampon she'd been wearing at the time, were tested and the results were a match to the blood type of Hansen. Now, it wasn't a DNA test like we have now, so it wasn't going to be super, super accurate in determining who it was, but it was just another piece in the evidence towards convicting Hansen. When the map they found in Hansen's attic was looked at, there were several X's, in fact 24 X's marked all over it. Now two of these precisely match where Pauline Goulding and Sherry Morrow's bodies were found. What shocked them more than seeing those two X's marked was the fact that all over the map, like I said, there's 24 X's. 
Investigators thought that he might be now responsible for 24 murders. And were these the markings of every different murder site? When Hanser was later presented with all this new evidence, he pretty much knew he was done. He could keep claiming his innocence or try to get some control back by suggesting a plea deal. Now, the deal he ended up striking was for him to plead guilty to the murders of Sherry Morrow, Joanna Messina, the Eklutner Annie, and Paula Goulding. Also, he would plead guilty to the kidnapping and rape of Sidney Paulson. He also wanted, as part of this deal, no media coverage, or as little as possible, to protect his family. And in return, he would help investigators recover the bodies of his victims. Now, he ended up confessing to murdering 17 women, although it's thought he was responsible for at least 21, and this was starting from the early 70s. Now, on April the 24th, Sue Luna's body was recovered near the Nick River. The same day, Malai Larson's body was found at the parking area by the old Nick Bridge. On April the 25th, Delin Frey's body was found at Horseshoe Lake. On April the 26th, Teresa Watson's body was found near Kanai Pinchula. Peninsula, sorry. On the same day, Angela Fedden's body was found at Figure 8 Lake. On April the 29th, Tamara Pedersen's body was found one and a half miles from Old Nick Bridge. And on May the 9th, Lisa Fettrell's body was found south of Old Nick Bridge. Sadly, no other bodies were found. Hansen ended up being sentenced to 461 years without the possibility of parole. He ends up dying August 21st, 2014, age 75, at Alaska Regional Hospital in Anchorage. Robin Pelkey, she was unidentified until 2021. She'd been named Horseshoe Harriet. Now, Ek Luna Annie has yet to be identified. Okay, so I suppose you're wondering how did he get around his wife, Dala, finding out even half of what was going on. Well, she knew he went out earlier than he needed to prepare for the day's baking. You know, he'd have to be there at 2am, so, you know, if he's leaving at 11 o'clock at night, she knew that was probably a little bit early to go six miles down the road. She sort of thought he must be taking women for sex. She knew he was a thief, but there were two things that stopped her from leaving him. One, she was a Christian and thought maybe God would sort this out, but more importantly, She didn't want the kids to go without a father. She had no idea he was raping and murdering women. So you can understand sort of her side of it. Also, Hanson would do a lot of this full-on criminal activity where he brought the women back home, put them in his basement, when Darla and the kids were visiting family. So he used to organise holidays for them so they'd disappear for a while. Hanson would tell investigators how he'd pick topless dancers or sex workers as his victims because he was a respected businessman and they were just prostitutes. No one would believe them over him if they went to police after he raped them and of course not all of them got the chance. He told investigators some he would take on his plane out to the wilderness, strip them, bind their hands and let them go. He would then hunt them down, either stabbing or shooting them. This was more than just for the sex, right? It was more the thrill of the hunt. And by the way, those Dexter fans out there, the character Kurt Coldwell was loosely based on Robert Hansen. Even though Hansen denied killing Celia Beth Van Zanten, 
Megan Siobhan Emery and Mary Kathleen Till, all who went missing between December 71 and July 75, it is believed they were his first victims. Okay, so Hanson was rejected by women in his youth. This rejection festered deep inside of him to the extent that he hated women. But he wanted to love them, but hated their rejection. In sex workers, he could find that he had the power. They wanted his money. He could pick and choose. He could reject them. He split women into two categories, saints and whores. Saints were women like his wife, uh, mothers, the next door neighbour, his employees. But sex workers, they were just totally different. They were whores, less than human, an easy target for his deviance. He soon found out that attacking or raping non-sex workers would get him into trouble. It would get him in prison. If he turned his violence towards sex workers, he had a much better chance of getting away with it, which he did. Missing sex workers were a low priority for police, as they were known to just skip town. They were always using different names, and no one had any idea they were missing at all sometimes. Hanson didn't kill all the women he attacked, but one, Cindy Paulson, was obviously going to be put on his plane, taken out to the middle of nowhere, and hunted down like an animal. She was just lucky to escape, and although initially her story to police wasn't believed, she would be instrumental in getting Hanson charged and convicted, even though she didn't have to take the stand. So that's about it for this week. You just got to think about this guy, how he showed all the signs of being a serial killer way back then. You just hope that nowadays, maybe the teacher at school sees this kid and starts thinking, maybe he's a serial killer. And as he goes through life and he starts lighting fires and killing animals and thieving and all this sort of stuff, it gets picked up in the courts. And hopefully there's some way somebody can either fix this person or they lock them up for good. They don't just let them get out. And as soon as they get out on some of these small sentences, they just escalate their offending. It, it, It escalates to rape and murder. And we've seen it time and time again. I'm sure you out there in the true crime world know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so that's it for this week. What a crazy case. Now, for a real deep dive, now this is about an eight-hour read. Don't forget to check out Butcher Baker, The True Account of Alaskan Serial Killer by Walter Gilmore and Leland E. Hale. As usual, I got the Audible version, and this isn't an ad. They've not paid me or anything. I just got it from Audible, and I must have listened to it several times. I fall asleep sometimes i've got to go back to where i was tonight but it's so well narrated it's not boring or an annoying voice like mine it's well narrated and it includes a lot of the other crimes that Hanson was involved uh it goes into so much more depth also there's a lot more about the victims in the book that i just couldn't put here in the time we've got tonight Okay, that's it. So I'd like to thank my Patreons past and present for keeping the island's light on. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash true crime island. A free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases, just like Charles Thorne and Adina Sakaris did. Thank you so much. Boom, fuckalunga. 
But can I just ask you to take the time to share the podcast with your friends or even in groups on Facebook, whatsoever, wherever you socialise. The island's one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and basically commercial free. I do help out other podcasts. I like to run some promos, all that sort of stuff, or, or promote the books that I buy because some of them are great reads. Best of all, when you help me out like that, it's free. Doesn't cost you anything. Go to my website, True Crime Island. That's where you can stream all the episodes if you haven't got a pod player or don't want to use a pod player. There's links to everything there as well. That's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Good night.